If you've got your Bibles, open to John chapter 7. Last week we um, finished John chapter 6 and we saw that the disciples deserted Jesus when they going got tough and that was because they did not believe and they were seeking temporary satisfaction and not eternal blessing. They were seeking physical bread instead of the eternal bread of life. Remember Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And fulfilling the desires and appetites of the flesh were more important than seeking eternal rewards and crowns. We also looked at why Jesus chose Judas to be one of his disciples when he already knew that Judas would betray him. That was an interesting study. This week, we're going to learn about Jesus as he attends the Feast of Tabernacles. At the time, the Jews want to kill him. And so it's really dangerous for him to go down to Jerusalem. Uh, He has to go because... He's got to keep the law, and um, he's got to you know, keep all points of the law. And one of those is that um, the three feasts, three times of the year, all the men have to go down to these um, feasts, and uh, the tabernacles is one of them. Uh, I'm just going to read a, f- a few verses from the chapter, like highlights, the things that um, bring out the main points before you read the chapter. Uh, verse 7 says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify concerning it that its works are evil. So that's Jesus' message to these people. Jesus answered them in verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man desires to do his will, he shall know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. So they're saying, how do we know what you're saying is true? Well, it's not mine, it's from the Father. Uh, Verse 33 and 34, Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will look for me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And that's for me, is a very sobering verse. And then the last main point for me, the one that sticks out for me, is um, 37 to 39. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. By this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this chapter. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for its power to change us. Lord, when it's combined with uh, the Spirit and with faith, Lord, it transforms us from glory to glory. And we just pray that you will transform us today as we submit to you and allow you to do your work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start at verse 1. It says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. He would not walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you do. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, reveal yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always fitting. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify concerning it, 
that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not going up to this feast yet, because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Verse 10. However, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but secretly. Then the Jews looked for him at the feast and said, Where is he? There was much complaining among the people concerning him, for some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he deceives the people. Yet no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. That's the Jewish leaders. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews marveled, saying, How has this man become educated, having never been taught? Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man desires to do his will, he shall know whether the teaching is from God, or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Did Moses not give you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath day although it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs. It goes all the way back to Abraham. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath day, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I completely healed a man on the Sabbath day? Do not judge according to appearance, but practice righteous judgment. Then some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? Look, he speaks publicly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers indeed know that this is really the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple, cried out, You know me, and you likewise know where I am from. I have not come on my own authority, but he who sent me, is true, whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. So they tried to seize him, but no one laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still, many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the people murmuring these things concerning him, so the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will look for me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What kind of saying is this which he said, 
you will look for me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. By this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, when they heard these words, many of the people said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has the scripture not said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among people because of him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No man has ever spoken like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Not at all. This crowd who does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, being one of them who came to Jesus by night, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Then everyone went to his own house. So, this is happening over the um, seven-day period where they build these booths and celebrate their God's provision for them in the wilderness as they spent the 40 years in the wilderness. And that, that's what the people are doing, and I'll get into the, the pouring out of water a bit later on. So let's go back to verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. Um, the Greek word translated walked is in the perfect tense, which means it's a continual action. It's, it's a continuing action. We learned last week that the people had walked away from him, but Jesus kept on walking in that region. He kept on ministering to those people. So for us, we reach out to people and people don't respond. But what do we do? Do we give up? No, we just keep ministering to them. We, we might not be able to uh, speak freely to them, but we, we stay in the area. We keep on being a witness in every way that we can and keep praying for them, especially our families and, and people in our local community. For he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the main reason, if you go back a couple of chapters, is because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And they were really upset about that. They thought that he was breaking the um, Sabbath rules. And if you go back to John 5.18, just to remind you why, it's on the screen. So the Jews sought even more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Not just because he healed, but also because he's making himself equal with God. He's declaring his deity. Jesus is exercising wisdom by staying out of Jerusalem and, and Judea because it's dangerous for him there. 
So for us, we need to be wise sometimes and recognize that if something's dangerous, you know, it's best to stay away. But when it's in the Father's will and the Father's plan, Jesus went to Jerusalem trusting that the Father would protect him. For us, it's important that we follow the leading of the Spirit and not be fearful and refuse to go where there's danger, but also not be impulsive where we just run into things. So we need to walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 2, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And I just mentioned that before. Uh, it's, it's like a family camp. You know, they'd all get, gather around and, and tell stories about all, all the stuff that God's done for them. And um, yeah, so you can think of a, a, a kind of informal gathering where they, they get together and talk about their history and, and praise God for his provision for them in the wilderness for 40 years. Verse 3, his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So these are Jesus' brothers mocking and challenging him. He's grown up with them. He's been ministering for about three years now. This is it's in bit, it's about six months before he will be um, crucified. We're getting to the end of Jesus' life in the book of John. And they're saying, come on, Mr. Miracle Worker, you want to be famous? Be famous. You know, if you're a miracle worker, get out there and make yourself known. And the Living Bible says, you can't be famous when you hide like this. If you're so great, prove it to the world. Come on, Mr. Miracle Worker, make yourself famous. (laughs) For even his brothers did not believe in him. Verse 5. So Jesus grew up with his brothers, obviously. He never did anything wrong. He never called them a name. He never teased them. He was always kind to them, always looking out for them, always providing for them as the oldest son and looking out for his mum because his dad had passed away. He did literally did everything right. And yet what happened? They didn't believe in him. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see that he was the Messiah. But later on, we know that Jude uh, and James both come to a saving faith. James becomes a leader of the church. Um, Jude is also a leader. He wrote the book of Jude. But that didn't happen until after Jesus was crucified and resurrected from the dead. And you can uh, cross-reference Mark 3.21 and Acts 1.14. Mark 3.21 shows that his family goes and says, Hey, you're crazy. Come on, get out of here. And then Acts 1.14 is after the resurrection and, and they're all gathered together, including Jesus' brothers. Now, a lot of the time, well, sometimes people might think, If I'm a nice person, my neighbor is going to get saved. I'll mow his lawn, I'll bake him cookies, I'll smile when he drives by. I'll be a lovely person, right? And that will convert him. Well, there was no lovelier person than Jesus Christ. Jesus was living with his family, but that did not convert them. What they needed was the resurrection. They needed the crucifixion. We can't bring people into the kingdom by kindness. Yes, it helps, and we definitely need to show love, but we need 
the message of the cross. We need to explain to people the, the full gospel, which I'll get into in a minute. Uh, verse 6, Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. So basically, Jesus says to his brothers, you can go up to Jerusalem any time you want. You can fit in. You have no reason to fear. But because they hate me, I need to exercise wisdom. But he did go up to Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem anyway, even though he didn't fit in. And why? Well, if you look at Deuteronomy 16.16, it says, Three times a year all your males must appear before the Lord your God in the place where he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they must not appear before the Lord empty, which means they need to bring a gift or a sacrifice. So it may not have been humanly wise for Jesus to go there because he's under you know, there's a death threat over his life that they're jealous of him and they want to kill him. But he was submitted to God's will. He knew the word completely. He, the, he knew the Father's will accurately. And to fulfill the law perfectly, he went to Jerusalem. But he did it in secret. So he didn't. He kind of just went there and popped up in the middle of, I don't know what day it was, second or third day, something like that, and just started preaching. But the first two or three days, people were saying, where is he? Where's, where's, where's Jesus? So for us, the application is, the Father's timing is just as important as knowing his will. It's not just enough to know what his will is, but we need to know when to apply that will for our lives that plan that God has. Because sometimes as soon as we know what God wants us to do, we think, okay, let's go and do it. Let's go and do God's will. (laughs) And we get out of his timing. We move ahead of his timing, and that leads to frustration. Now, I just want to focus on this verse here a little bit. It's John 7, verse 7. It says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. So here's Jesus summarizing his message. Come to the Father because he loves you. Have warm and fuzzy experiences. No. It hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. So none of this God loves you has a wonderful plan for your life. No, your works are evil. You are separated from God. Unless you receive my gift of forgiveness, recognizing that my death in your place is a payment for your sin, you cannot go to heaven, but rather are condemned. I offer you this gift because I love you and I want you to be with me forever in heaven. So as I said, for me, this is such an important phrase. As Christians, we are to speak the truth in love. And the truth is that people are evil. They are dirty, rotten sinners, bad and selfish to the core. Sounds pretty nasty, doesn't it? Okay. Why? Because we're all born in the image of Adam. Adam was made in the image of God and everyone descended from Adam was in his likeness, not God's likeness. We're, we're corrupted. The image of God has been corrupted. We're all born with a sinful nature. Our works are evil. And 
I'd just like to go to Romans chapter 3, just in case you don't believe me. It says, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. It says, Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all, for we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless or worthless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. So I'll just pause there. I'm going to keep going. But how would you, how do you think people would react if you go up to them and say, um, do you know how God sees you? Not, 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 not how he thinks about you because he loves you, but how he sees them in their sin. That's how he sees them in their sin. And that's what Jesus' message is. He's testifying that their deeds are evil. And the people hate him for it. I'll keep going in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose, the purpose of the law, is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. Verse 20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. That's good works. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So to share the gospel, you must use the law to show people that they're sinners. And that will cause some people to get mad. So get used to it. (laughs) Expect it. Learn to live with it. Some people will be eternally grateful to you. And in many countries, many people will try to kill you. But remember what Jesus said in John 3.19? It says, This is the verdict, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And what did he say about us being popular and loved in this world? Or not popular and loved? Not loved? John 15.18-19 If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So if before someone becomes a Christian, you need to tell them that you're going to be hated because the message you have is going to be very unpopular. That's called counting the cost. It's only fair that you tell people that before they become a Christian. I'll keep going in John 15. If you belong to the world... The world will treat you with affection and would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, no longer one with it, but I have chosen or selected you out of the world, the world hates or detests you. So part of being a Christian is warning people of the judgment to come. And this is a message that nobody initially wants to hear. A gospel message without the law, without revealing the sinfulness of the person, is really a false prophecy. I haven't thought about it this way before, but I found this verse in Lamentations. It says, Your prophets have said so many foolish things, false to the core, 
they did not save you from exile by pointing out your sins. Instead, they painted false pictures, filling you with false hope. Isn't that a powerful verse? This is going back to Jeremiah's time in the the years leading up to the exile when the the Jews uh, were northern kingdom and southern kingdom were taken away into uh, the northern kingdom into Syria and southern kingdom into Babylon. It says, Your prophets have said so many foolish things, false to the core. They did not save you from exile by pointing out your sins. Instead, they painted false pictures, filling you with false hope. If you read through Jeremiah, you can read what the false prophets said. Oh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's taken stuff from the temple, but it's going to come back. You know, in two years, everything's going to be fine, or whatever the time period was. And just wait, and you'll see, God's going to make everything good again. You don't need to change your behavior. You don't need to do anything. Just, you know, just keep coming to the temple. We could rephrase the middle sentence for us Christians today as this. This is, this is mine. They did not save you from the second death by pointing out your sins. The exile you can think of as, you know, symbolic, figuratively, as, as like hell. The false prophet said, oh, everything's going to be fine. You don't need to change. What are we, what's the false gospel? When you don't bring in the law, well, everything's going to be fine. You don't need to change. You don't need to repent. You're not a really that bad a person. Because the false prophets in Jeremiah's day didn't warn the people of the coming judgment and didn't encourage them to repent of their sins, the people went into exile. In the same way, the seeker-friendly church with its non-offending, watered-down gospel message is almost completely ineffective in saving people from hell and eternal damnation. And false hope, that going back to that verse in Lamentations, that's what the false or watered-down gospel gives. You can go to heaven. No need to repent or change your ways. So if we are spreading a false gospel, one where we refuse to point out people's sin, one which glosses over sin and omits and doesn't talk about repentance, then guess what? Everyone is going to like us for now because it's a nice message. Proverbs 27.6. probably heard this one before. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Now, if you define a friend as someone who is willing to tell you something honestly, even though it's going to be to their own hurt, and you define an enemy, whatever they say to you is going to make you like them more, so they're more important about your opinion of them, then how would we define someone who only gives half the gospel out, who misses out the offensive part, which talks about their sinful condition and their precarious predicament awaiting them, when they have to stand before the judge of the universe at the great white throne judgment. For me, I'd put them into the category of enemy. It's the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Now, one of the reasons I love my wife and I trust her so much is that she is honest with me. I really, really like the fact that she's honest with me. She doesn't try to flatter me ever. <laughs> um, I often don't like what she says. Now, I have to be honest here, I often don't like what she says, but I value her advice the most. It's because of her honesty that I value her advice the most. Her wounds have wrought much healing, and I love her for it. And this is how I feel towards God as well. His word cuts deep, as it says in Hebrews, between the bone and marrow, exposing my thoughts and my motives. 
it hurts. And yes, I don't like it. But it's so refreshing to be free and to be able to change. The greater the repentance in my life, the greater the joy. The longer I walk as a Christian, the longer anyone walks as a Christian, they should be maturing. We should be maturing. The more accepting we become of his correction, because we know that it will lead to greater freedom from sin and greater joy and love because of a more intimate relationship with the Father. So the longer we walk as a Christian, the more mature we become, we become more accepting of his correction, knowing that it will lead to greater freedom from sin, greater joy and love, because we will experience a more intimate relationship with the Father. So as I was saying before, people, if we give half the gospel, the seeker-friendly gospel, people will like us for now. Oh, isn't he such a nice man? Oh, he's so encouraging. I feel so good after talking with him or listening to that sermon. But we will have blood on our hands because we didn't warn people of the judgment to come, the second death, the lake of fire, the great white throne judgment. We will not be effective in saving people from the second death unless we point out their sins, unless, like Jesus, we testify that their deeds are evil. Ezekiel 3, 18-19 If I warn the wicked, saying, You are under the penalty of death, but you fail to deliver the warning, they will die in their sins, and I will hold you responsible for their deaths. If you warn them, and they refuse to repent and keep on sinning, they will die in their sins, but you have saved yourself because you obeyed me. Notice the key words there. Repent. And warn. We need to warn people that, that they need to repent. If they don't change, if there's no change in their lives because of a new relationship with the Father, then uh, they will die in their sin. But some people say, oh, that's Old Testament. Well, what did Paul say in Acts 20, verse 26 to 27? Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not keep from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul was not shy to tell people that they were sinners. Look at what he wrote in Romans chapter 3. <laughs> Finally, remember Jesus' examples in evangelism, the woman at the well. What did he say to her? Go and get your husband. Oh, actually, I don't have a husband. You know, he convicted her. The rich young ruler. Uh, what did Jesus say to him? Go and sell everything that you have. Covetousness. Jesus, press that button. <laughs> That's your sin. You need to deal with this. Uh, the, the Pharisees, legalism. You whitewashed tombs. Hip hypocrisy. He didn't hold back in pointing out their sins. Now, some embraced the truth and experienced salvation, while others went away sad and or angry and or offended. There's lots of different reactions that people have when they reject the gospel. But what's important is that Jesus was honest with them and allowed them to see their real predicament. Then they could make a, a well-informed choice regarding their eternal destiny. Jesus knew people's sins, so he could just boop, point, and if God gives us a gift, a word of knowledge, and we could do the same thing. But often we don't have that. So we have the law. We can just go through the Ten Commandments. Firstly, do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? And then let's. would you like to have a little test and... Have you just go through a few and see how you go? 
And, you know, have you ever told a lie? Have you stolen anything? And you can go through the Ten Commandments and the people answer for themselves. You're not telling them they're a sinner. They're telling you they're a sinner because they're answering the question. And uh, it's it's not a... um, It's not you condemning them. It's them understanding, coming to the understanding that, oh, yeah, I've broken the law. I'm a lawbreaker. I'm in trouble. It's their conscience that's convicting them, not you. So as followers of Christ, we have the same message. We are ambassadors of Christ, seeking to reconcile a lost world to the Father. Second Corinthians 5, 17-21, you know this one as well. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. All of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. And this verse is in bold, okay, verse 19. For God was in Christ, the Father was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So just just pause there. What's this wonderful message of reconciliation? We go to people and say, the Father's not counting your sins against you anymore. That's great news, isn't it? But if they don't know they're a sinner, that's not such great news. So we are Christ's ambassadors, verse 20. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God, through the Father, through Christ. So will we be faithful to speak the truth in love? Hey friend, I have a wonderful message for you. Did you know that God's not counting your sins against you? Isn't that great? Did you know that Jesus took the death penalty, your death penalty? And if people don't understand they're deserving of death, they're going to be offended by that message. Romans 5.8 But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And people might say, well, I just want to tell people that God loves them. But how do you explain the love of God without the cross? And how do people understand the cross without understanding that they're sinners first? Without understanding that they're sinners and deserving of death, then they won't appreciate and won't understand why Jesus had to die in their place on the cross. Because they'll be thinking, well, I'm not such a bad person and I'm offended that you would imply that I've done something so bad that I'm deserving of death. Without using the Lord to show a person their sinfulness, the gospel becomes offensive news, not good news. So what do people do to get around this? Well, they use a false gospel. They use some version of the prosperity gospel. God loves you, wants to bless you. And this imaginary God demonstrates his love by bestowing practical and physical gifts to his children. And this is why so many stop following God when times get hard, because they have come to God for the wrong reason. They're looking for physical blessings. When they don't get them, they walk away. Many of these people are false converts who will boast before the throne about their good deeds, only to hear the words, Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Right to the end, they genuinely thought they were saved, but they weren't. Matthew 7, 21-23 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done so many wonderful works in your name? But I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice evil. Again, come back to repentance, you who practice evil. This indicates that there's no true repentance of sin, no change of heart towards God that led to a real change in behavior. You can't just add a few Christian activities onto your life and say, that's going to get me to heaven. And I, I thought about a little example. You've got a little Hyundai gets, you know, one of those tiny little cars, little you know, buzz boxes, and you take off the, the Hyundai badge and you put a Lamborghini badge on there. Well, it now says Lamborghini, but it still dries like it gets, and it won't get you to heaven. So, <laughs> pretty sad, eh? <laughs> Dad joke. <laughs> All right. Verse 8. For my hour, my, or my time, has not yet fully come. So this refers to the time, the hour or the time that is yet to come that Jesus is talking about is when Jesus would die for the sins of the whole world. Every person who has ever lived has had their sins paid for. Because Jesus loves all people, Jesus demonstrated his love to every person by dying on the cross in their place, giving them the opportunity to receive the free gift of eternal life. And all a person has to do is to respond and accept that free gift by believing that Jesus took the punishment for their sins and repenting. Now, here is a a sequence of where Jesus uses this phrase, my hour or my time has not yet come. It's on the screen up here. The first one is in John 2, 4. It's the wedding at Cana. Jesus said to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to be crucified. And John seven thirty. We're just covering this in, today in this chapter. During the Feast of Tabernacles. So they tried to seize him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. And then the next day, which we'll cover next week or the week after, in John chapter 8, Jesus spoke these words in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one arrested him, for his hour had not yet come. See, it's not time yet. The Father is protecting him. The Father is preserving him. And then we come to John twelve twenty seven In the garden, the night he was betrayed, Jesus is praying. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, he's not going to pray that. But for this purpose I came to this hour, this time. Father, glorify your name. When I read um, these scriptures, I think of myself as being invincible and protected until my hour comes, (laughs) until it's time for me to go home. Because God will protect us. Like Peter, what happened to him? He gets arrested, he's about to be beheaded, and the angel lets him free. You know, And there's lots of examples, even in today's the countries where people are getting martyred and persecuted. Well, their hour has come. But other people's hour has not come. They get freed. They're miraculously freed sometimes. We just need to be faithful unto death, basically. And uh, in our country, where we live, it's not, it's not so hard. But we need to be ready. I like, it says, if that, verse 28 says, Father, glorify your name in John 12. 
Glorifying the Father's name usually involves suffering, unfortunately. And Paul's example, Paul falls off, gets thrown off his horse, he sees the light, and God speaks to him, Jesus speaks to him. And then Jesus speaks to Ananias, and he says to Ananias, go and talk to Paul. And Ananias says, oh, come on, you've got to be kidding. Oh, there's no way I'm going to talk to that guy. He's dangerous. But the Lord said to him, go your way, for this man is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. A tremendous privilege. But with that privilege comes responsibility and suffering. Because we learn through suffering. Trials are what make us grow. Verse 11. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now this is happening over and over again. The message of the gospel is divisive. Some people will say yes, and some people will say no. And it happened with Jesus while he was on earth, and it's been happening ever since. Verse 14, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. So we don't know exactly what day. It says about the middle, so maybe the third or fourth day, who knows. He didn't make a big entrance, though you know he went up secretly, but now he just stands up and he starts teaching. This is boldness. All the people around him want to kill him. But Jesus just goes and does what the Father says. Now, Jesus went into the temple and taught. What The previous time that Jesus was in the temple, or not the previous, but the previous time it's written, back in John um, 2, it says that he cleansed the temple. That's back in John chapter 2, verse 13 to 16. And this time he's teaching in the temple. And I think there's an application here for us. Before Jesus can impart his word effectively to me, there must be a cleansing, or there must first be a cleansing within me. So the money changes were driven out, the, the cattle chased away, all those distractions, all the material stuff that was important to us had to be put aside. And then God can start to teach us when we're not full of all that worldly stuff. He can start to fill us with truth, with him with himself. And so when we come before we come to church, before we start our devotions in the morning or whenever you have your devotions, it's always good to say, Lord, before I even begin reading, search my heart. Show me if there's anything which needs to be confessed. Because it says in Psalm sixty six verse eighteen, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And that's the MEV, modern English version. And the NLT says, If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So it's really important that uh, we just check ourselves. And uh, because we don't want to be, you know, wasting our time. If you haven't forgiven someone or if you've got something you need to get right with the Lord, do that first before you start reading your Bible. Now, why does the Father stop? Or break communication with us? Well, it's not because he's angry with us. It's not because he's giving up on us. But because the way the sin in our life will destroy us. 
And so the father says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to pull back from you. I'm going to, there's going to be a, a distance between us. You're still part of the family, but this is a practical, uh, I mean, a communication gap, a, a practical separation, not a positional one. So when your prayers aren't being answered or when the word doesn't seem to speak to you, call upon me. Let me come in and cleanse your temple and then I will continue to teach you. Then you will hear my voice and then you will see my face. And that's a contemplation. That's just spending time with the Lord, just quietly waiting on the Lord and asking him to search our hearts. And David said that in Psalm 139. Search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me, and and it continues. So before teaching, there must be cleansing. So it's just a a practical thing that I wanted to mention there. Father, I just thank you for what we've learned so far this week. Lord, help us to realize that before we can be taught, we need to be cleansed. Lord, we need to have our heart right with you. If our heart is hard, then we can't receive your truth. And Lord, Help us to realize that as we bring glory to your name, it's going to most likely involve suffering and pain. But Lord, we rejoice in suffering because it leads us into a closer relationship with you. It gives us perseverance and and hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we experience more joy and more love as we go through more tribulation. So thank you, Father. This world is upside down, and uh, but you may... You make it the right way up. Help us to see things and, and live your way and not the fleshly human way. So we just pray that you'll guide us this week as we um, meditate on your word. Help us to be bold in our witness. Help us to remember that um, Jesus was hated because he testified that the world, its deeds were evil. It's not a nice message. It's, and it reminds me of um, John and the, the scroll that the angel gave him to eat, it was sweet to eat. The gospel is beautiful. But sharing it with other people, it became bitter in his stomach. Lord, help us to um, be bold and honest with people so we can say like Paul at the end of our lives, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Everyone that we've come in contact with, that we've had the opportunity to share the gospel with, we've shared the whole gospel, the full gospel. And we can be unashamed. So we just, yeah, commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.